Well, as long as everyone's at their post, <laughs> Neil's in his spot, I'm in my spot, and Joe is good and doesn't have to preach today. So, awesome. Well, good morning. It's great to have you here. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Probably some of you guys are still struggling from the turkey, I can tell. <laughs> you probably wish you had a do-over, huh? Well, there's a question for you. If you could have a do-over for one decision in your life, what would it be? <laughs> Whether it was 20 years ago or even just a few days ago at a Thanksgiving table, is there something that you have chosen that so impacted the trajectory of your life that you wish you could go back in time and have a chance to do it over? I'm sure we could. It could be a big thing, it could be a small thing. Maybe it was a car purchase. Perhaps it was a job you took or a contract you signed. Perhaps it was a relationship that you jumped into. Hopefully that person's not sitting next to you. <laughs> but what would you like to go back in time and change? There was a series of books that came out a while back called Choose Your Own Adventure. How many are familiar a little bit with those books? They were great because you would make your way through the, the story, and then you would come to a point where you would have to make a decision. You would have to choose for the character. You would have a say in the outcome for that story. And so you would make the choice, and it would tell you what page to go to, and you would flip over to that page, and, and then you would read along, and that story would go seamlessly. And then you would come up with another choice, another decision to make. And you would make your decision based on what you thought was best, for, or at least how you thought you wanted the story to, to, to go. And you would flip over to that page, and you would read along. And it was really neat because you could actually end up getting to the end of the story and then go back in time and redo some of those decisions. If you didn't like the outcome of the story, if you didn't like what happened to the character, you got a redo. You could flip those pages back and say, hey, I'm going to make a different decision and then carry that decision forward. And you would have multiple books and multiple stories in just one book. But unfortunately, in our lives... We don't have that luxury, do we? We've got one shot at this. And we have to live with our decisions. We live our lives one page flip at a time. And our choices not only impact our lives, but they impact those around us. And that includes the good choices and the bad choices. And I would say that at South Suburban, that we could characterize the season that we're in as a page flip. It's that in between time of finishing one page and turning over to the next, it is a time of great anticipation and of the 60 plus. The story has been good so far for South Suburban. Looking back over the 60 plus years, our congregation has been, um, has been faithful to God and God has been faithful to it. But we're in the middle of a page turn. Finishing up one page getting ready to flip over to the next. And with great anticipation, we look forward to continuing on in God's story for South Sub. This then also includes God's story for us. Yet we don't know fully what's written on the upcoming pages. We can guess, we can speculate, but we just don't know for sure. We have to trust God. 
And for some, that may make you really uneasy. But for even the Christ follower, we may know the author and finisher of our faith, but that doesn't guarantee smooth sailing, does it? It doesn't automatically free us from doubt or worry. We're human. We know that God is at work in our lives and has our best interests at heart. God is faithful and God is good. But we also need to understand that this isn't the first time God's had a page flip with his people. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to the book of Numbers, chapter their own. And we're going to venture back in time when the Israelites were experiencing their own page turn. They were about to step into God's new adventure for them. Now, their history was quite different than South Suburbans because, well, but they had a very similar future. You see, the Israelites had recently come out of a harsh life of captivity as slaves in Egypt. And they were at the borders of the land of Canaan. Now, Canaan was a part of the Fertile Crescent, and the Bible describes it as a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a way of saying it was prime real estate. It just had one challenge. It was occupied. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible or anything involving Jewish history, here's a 60-second rundown. God, known as Yahweh to the Hebrews, to the Israelites, set apart a man named Abram to establish a people group eventually known as the Israelites. And from these people would eventually come forth the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And as, as part of this covenant or contract, God said that he would provide a place, a land, for Abram to settle and establish this family. And as this was a covenantal agreement between God and Abram, the land became known as the promised land, the son of... And the promised land was essentially that land of Canaan. This would be Canaan, the son of Ham, all right, and the grandson of Noah. We're going back that far. And that's Noah of the great flood. The Israelites now were descendants of Ham's brother, Shem, all right? So Canaan... The Canaanites come from Ham, Israelites come from Shem, where Mo, Larry, and Curly are in the mix, I do not know. <laughs> but Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And if you were to flip back into Genesis chapter 9, you would see Noah cursing not Ham, but Canaan for something that Ham had done. Ham had the indiscretion, but Canaan got the cursing for it. And why Noah picked on, on Canaan, I don't know. But as part of that curse, the descendants of Canaan would be subject or servants to the family line of Shem. Now, for all of you firstborn out there who think that the babies of the family always get it good, that was not the case in Noah's family. Ham was the baby, and Ham was getting his, his good. For the Israelites, it therefore made complete sense for God to take the latest away from the evil and cursed descendants of Ham and give it over to the descendants of Shem. That was their mindset. That was their thinking. It would prove that God was on their side, that Shem was right, Ham was wrong, Ham was a loser, Shem was the winner. Nanny, nanny, boo-boo. 
But one of the ways that God marked this agreement by, was by changing Abram's name to Abraham, or father of many. And miracle after miracle and extraordinary experience after extraordinary experience, God put the gears in motion through Abraham, his son Isaac, and his grandson Jacob. And even Jacob would later have his name changed to Israel. This generation of Israelites that escaped from Egypt were on the cusp of fulfilling the promise God had made to their forefather Abraham over 600 years earlier. God had repeatedly confirmed that promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It was a promise to form a people group that would be blessed and that would in turn bless the world. This was the promised land. At least that's what they had been told. For generations during their captivity in Egypt, no one had laid eyes on it. No one had seen it. It was just a dream. It was just a story around a campfire. But all that was going to change. So if you're at the book of Numbers chapter 13, let's pick up in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. And so Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the command of the Lord, all of the men who were heads of the sons of Israel. So God had Moses select a leader from each of the 12 tribes or sons of Israel. The promise was for all of the descendants. No one was going to be left out. No one was going to be tossed to the side. Each tribe was going to have a witness and a voice. And here are the instructions from Moses, picking up in verse 17. When Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, go up there into the Negev, then go up into the hill country, see what the land is like, and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. How is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? And how are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? And how is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to get even some of the fruit of the land. And now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. The first ripe grapes, the first grape harvest would have happened in July with a second one in August and potentially a third one in September if things went well. And as you might imagine, it was the hottest and driest time of the year. And for the next 40 days, these 12 men jumped headlong in the latest edition of Survivor, Behind Enemy Lines edition. They traveled from the southern border of Israel today up through the West Bank between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea through what would be Jerusalem and then just past the Sea of Galilee. They got a good sampling of this promised land. And during their expedition, they assessed how difficult it would be to conquer the land and how lucrative such a venture would be. There was a lot riding on this report, on the report of these 12 spies. They would choose the adventure for the nation of Israel. Of all the generations that could have occupied the territory, they 
were going to be the ones to do so. Bigs, they were going to be the ones to fulfill this portion of the prophecy. It was a big step forward in fulfilling all that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But was it worth the hype? Was it still on Time Magazine's top 10 places to live in the Fertile Crescent? How were the schools? Were there good jobs and family-friendly activities? Had the promises been exaggerated over the years, or was this truly a land flowing with milk and honey? Was it a promise worth keeping? So let's see what their report is, picking up in verse 25. When they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the generation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them that all the congregation had showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told them and said, we went in to the land and where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey. And see, and this is its fruit. And if you read between the lines, it took two men and a large pole to carry back some of the grapes that they had cut. It was an amazing harvest. And considering that the Israelites had been traveling from Egypt, Israel, all the way through to this spot um, on the southern border of what would be Israel, they could use some fruit. They were tired of the, <laughs> tired of the manna bread. They could use a good report. But verse 28, nevertheless, 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 the people who live in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. This whole venture, this whole quest was about to go off the rails. And Caleb in verse 30 says, Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses, and they said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. You can see the two parallel reports transpiring, unfolding. We've got one report that this is amazing, that this indeed is a land flowing with milk and honey, that God's promises are yes and amen, yet it's also a report that says that there are big obstacles ahead. It's going to be a challenge. It is going to be a difficult situation. And yet the scales were tipping, the votes were tipping, not to put their eyes and trust on God who got them through all of these situations in their lives, but to focus on what they could see to focus on the challenges. They focused on the problems and not the promise. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. They took a little bit of truth and blew it out of proportion. And yes, it, they were too strong for us, for them, for people, but not for God. 
Isn't it amazing how quickly the truth become twisted and faith can be brought to its knees with a bad report? All 12 spies had the same experience but saw things through different lenses. They brought back the same evidence but had different levels of faith. They were at a page turn. They were having to choose one adventure or is stuck. And despite all the confirmations of the land being good, 10 of the spies stuck on the nevertheless portion of the report. Despite Caleb's best efforts to bring their focus back to a healthy dose of reality, the crowds wouldn't have it. They fixated on the challenges. They embraced the drama. They focused on the problem and not the promise. Now, for you to keep reading over into chapter 14, you see that the people got so low that they even began to blame Moses and Aaron. They were ready to stone them, to kill them, for taking them out of Egypt. They would rather have gone back to Egypt, returned to a life of slavery, of bondage, of hopelessness, than to even try and step forth into the promised land. And God wouldn't have it. God wouldn't have it. Because of their unbelief and the rebellion against God, Yahweh pressed the pause button on the Israelites moving forward to the promised land. They wouldn't be the generation to see that promise fulfilled. The 10 spies who had given a bad report quickly died of a plague. The remaining people would wander in the wilderness for the next 40 years, one year for each day, Close, they spied out the land. They had come so close to stepping into God's promise for them. It's been said that the Israelites spent those years wandering in the wilderness, not to get out of Egypt, but rather for God to get Egypt out of the Israelites. In the end, God would have a generation of his people who would put their faith and trust in him They wouldn't be swayed by the voices of others and the limited perspective of man. God was willing to wait for a new generation of believers who would trust him wholeheartedly. From this point forward, the trajectory for an entire generation of God's people had been altered. If only they could have gotten a do-over. If only they could have gone back and chosen a different adventure. When we make decisions out of fear and not faith, we can suffer unintended consequences. We can miss what God has for us. And some of the worst reports are the lies in our own hearts and heads. We defeat ourselves before we ever leave the house. We make giants of circumstances and situations. Bank statements and doctor's reports skew our thinking. Email us to the Facebook posts, rob us of sleep. Habits and hang-ups chain us to the past rather than propel us forward in victory and full of faith. You see, we forget who God says we are. We forget the promises he has made about us and to us. You see, we're not all that different than the Israelites, are we? It'd be so easy to judge. It'd be so easy to look down our nose at their decisions and the adventure they chose. But we're not so different. You see, here's what's a bit peculiar 
is that the Israelites had recently seen God work in their lives in pretty incredible ways. They had witnessed the 10 plagues in Israel or in Egypt, 10 plagues in which God had laid waste to the strength and confidence of the Egyptians, from the weather to the water to the animals and even to human life itself. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob showed himself superior to anything the Egyptians could conjure up. And if that wasn't enough, God ensured the Egyptians blessed the Israelites on their way out. These slaves didn't leave with just the shirts on their back. Instead, the Egyptians gave them all the supplies and livestock. They, even when the, they left Egypt rich and enriched. And even when the Egyptians recanted their offer and began pursuing the Israelites across the wilderness, God intervened in a miraculous way. All night long, God cut off the Egyptian army from advancing with a dark cloud. And at the same time, he lit up the, the, night, of the night sky on the side of where the Israelites were at as they crossed through the Red Sea. Yes, this would be the Red Sea that had been miraculously parted so that the Israelites could march across the seabed. And this wasn't just a muddy seabed. This was a dry seabed, as the Bible describes God doesn't do things halfway. He caused it to be dry and suitable for travel for kids and carts and cattle. And for the grand finale, God then caused that Red Sea to collapse on the Egyptians once the pursuit resumed. The Israelites didn't have to worry about the Egyptians anymore. They were free. They were truly free, so they thought. Yet that's not the story that the Israelites chose. Despite all that had been seen and experienced, they were stand against God in doubt, in unbelief. And we've done that before as well, haven't we? We said, God, I can't trust you. I can't put my faith in you on this situation or that situation. And sometimes we do that day after day, week after week, year after year, and our faith muscles get weak. And how do you strengthen a muscle? You have to work it. You have to work it. You have to work it. I'm amazed at some of the surgeries, even here in this congregation that we've recently had, People with hip replacement surgeries and knee replacement surgeries, and what's the first thing they do? They get you out of bed. They get you moving. You're not going to sit around. You're going to exercise your muscles. And that's what God wants us to do, to take those steps of faith. And maybe it's not the parting of the Red Sea size faith in front of us. Maybe it's something small. Maybe it's something tiny. Maybe it's something as simple as going to a neighbor and inviting them to a candlelight service here. Maybe it's helping someone who's in need. Saying, God, I would rather have a latte, but the kids of Silver Lining need this more than I do. God, Joy House, probably don't need a latte in all of December because these kids at Joy House really need something. It's what God lays on your heart, maybe even that still small voice, and saying, God, I'm willing. 
big or small, I'm willing to say yes to you. You see, God's establishment of the Israelite nation had one key purpose. It was to bring the salvation of the world through Jesus Christ, period. Even before the time of Adam and Eve with the introduction of humanity's struggle with sin, God's been after us. We're his creation. We're unique, precious, and priceless. God has been less concerned about borders and temples and sacrifices. He's always been after our hearts, yours, mine. And as a creator, he desires for us, the created, to make him our first love. He won't force us. He'll just love us, persistent, steady, unrelenting, even a reckless love. It's our stubbornness that gets in the way, our pride, our self-reliance, our own desires seated above the desire of God or desire for God. Humanity. You see, these are struggles of Christ followers and non-followers alike. It's humanity's struggle. If you won't pursue God, he'll pursue you. He'll come into your world of hurt and heartache, of stress and struggle. He'll take the beating. He'll bear the scars. He'll sacrifice for you, and he'll sacrifice for me. This truth is timely. In the liturgical church calendar, today is Christ the King Sunday. It's the last Sunday of the church calendar. We'll start a new year with Advent next week. Today, though, we focused on Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. He is supreme, supreme over the gods of Egypt, supreme over the Canaanites occupying the land, supreme over our fears, over our worries. He is all-powerful. No one, no God, no thing, no sin, no struggle is above Christ the King. Yet, as we step into this next season of Advent, we acknowledge that God stepped off of his throne in heaven to walk among us. Not as a heralded king of kings, healed his power, but as a baby. He didn't wield his power nor intimidate with his position. He stepped down off of his throne to save us from our sins, from our struggles. Our humanity was enough to dethrone God, the God of the universe, not because we captured a kingdom, but because we captured his heart. You did that. You commanded his attention, and you didn't have to do a single thing except breathe. You've got God. He loves you like crazy. And you and I caused God to step down from his throne and onto the cross. Christ the King did all of this to have access to the throne of your heart. He is seeking. He is finding. He is knocking. But the question is, will you let him in your, into your life? Will you let him onto your throne? The Israelites had a hard time doing that, didn't they? It was a challenge. It was a difficulty. 
So many things that they could see with their eyes kept for not all them back from seeing what God saw. Yet as we move forward, not only as a congregation of South Suburban Christian Church, but as we move forward as Christ followers, or perhaps even soon-to-be Christ followers, we have the opportunity to allow God on the throne of our lives, to move our own agenda off to the side and submit that to the King of Kings and say, Lord, what you want is going to be best Your promises are yes and amen. You are faithful. You are good. There are so many times in our life where we wish we could have a do-over for the big things and the little things, right? But if God was on the throne in those situations, would we really need a do-over? If God was in charge, would we need that do-over? So will you let him into your life? Will you let him back on to the throne? Maybe you guys are kind of sharing the throne. One cheek on, one cheek off. That's pretty awkward. Move your butt. Our lives are filled with pages we at life are written. We wish we could have that do-over. We wish we could get another crack at life. Though choosing a different adventure and rewriting our past would be a nice, would be nice, but we just don't have that luxury. So instead, we must choose each and every day whom we will serve. We must choose each day who will sit on the throne of our lives. And when we let Christ, the King, on the throne, we live the extraordinary life the Heavenly Father has for us. We live the life of promise. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your gift. We thank you. We didn't deserve it, but you loved us right where we're at. As imperfect as we are, as hopeless as some of our situations may seem, and even in our greatest victories and triumphs, when we're high on the clouds, God, you're loving us no matter what. But Lord, the best way we can love you back is by allowing you to sit on our thrones. You are Christ the King in our hearts, in our lives. And we invite you, will not allow to guide us, to lead us. We will not allow a nevertheless to get in the way. No broken relationship, no challenge at work, no obstacle even within our church family to ever step between the promised land and our Lord and Savior. Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us first. Amen.